Chapter Nine of Fairy Lands of the South Seas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Bendetti. Chapter Nine: The Starry Threshold. The only visible reminder which I have now of my residence on the island, where the souls were eaten, is a pocket notebook of penciled comment, with a dozen pages blank and fair at the back, in themselves a reminder of the fragmentary nature of that adventure in solitude, of the blank pages at the close of every chapter of experience, awaiting the final comment which is never set down. It is a small notebook of Chinese manufacture, with a pretty fantasy of flowers woven through the word memoranda, and butterflies with wings of gold and blue hovering over it, meant to suggest, perhaps, that one's memories, however happy, or however seemingly enduring, are as ephemeral as they and must soon fade and die. But I am not willing to accept such a suggestion, to believe that I can ever forget even the most trivial of the events which took place at Ruterio or at Soul Eater's Island. By some peculiar virtue of their own, they stand out with the vividness of proportions of a childhood experience which remains fixed in the memory when other more important happenings have been long forgotten. The casual reader of the notebook would never guess this from the comment written there. Did he know the length and the nature of my residence at Atoll? He would be surprised, merely, that with so much leisure for observation there should be such poverty of recorded fact. I myself am surprised and a little appalled when I think how the weeks slip by leaving me nothing to show for them. I became a spendthrift of time. I was under the delusion that my own just share of it had been immeasurably increased, that in some unaccountable way I had fallen heir to a legacy of hours and days which could never be exhausted. The delusion was of gradual growth like the habit of reverie which fastens itself at last upon the most restless of wanderers among the atolls. In the beginning I was full of business. I remember with what earnestness of purpose I wrote on the first page of the notebook. Retario, Observations on Life and Character in the Low Archipelago. I had ambitious plans. I meant to go back and forth between my hermitage and the village island, notebook in hand, saying, Echetera? What is that? Nefa aparo pomoti? How do you say that in Pomodian? And when I had learned the language and had completed my studies of flora and fauna, I was to be the Boswell of the atolls, curious, tireless, not to be rebuked by the wind rustling the fronds or of the palms, nor by the voice of the sea when the wind was low, saying, Shh! on thirty miles of coral reef. But I was rebuked, or so it seemed to me, and now I fear the learned monograph is never to be written. A faltering purpose is plainly indicated in the notebook. It becomes apparent in the first observation on the life and character of the Pomodians, which reads, Before the starry threshold of Jove's court, my mansion is where those immortal shapes of bright aerial spirits live, enshrared. 
in regions mild of calm and serene air. The president of the Polynesian Society would say, and rightly, no doubt, that this is not germane to the subject, but at the time I wrote it, it was so accurately descriptive of the place where my house stood, that it might have been embodied with scarcely the exchange of a word in an exact real estate announcement of the location of my property. I set it down one evening in early summer, the evening of my first day's residence at Soul Eaters Island. The completion of my house had been celebrated with a feast, and toward midnight I was left alone, watching the departure of the last of the villagers, who were returning in their canoes along the ocean side of the atoll. The sea was as calm as I have ever seen it, and as they went homeward, dipping their paddles into the shining tracks of the stars, my guests were singing an old chant. It was one of innumerable verses, telling of an evil earth spirit in the form of a seabird, which was supposed to make its home on the motu, and at the end of each verse the voices of the women rose in the refrain, which I could hear long after the canoes had passed from sight. Ai, ai, tinamai, alas, alas, how beautiful it is. A lament that a spirit so vindictive, so pitiless, should be so fair to outward-seeming. Standing at the starry threshold, listening to the ghostly refrain, I translated its application, its meaning, too, from the bird to the island where, perhaps, I would one day see it in my rambles. I regretted that it was so inaccessible, so remote and hidden from the world as though that were not more than half the reason for its untarnished beauty. It is a maudlin feeling that of sadness at the thought of loveliness hidden from appraising eyes, and I am inclined to think that it springs not so much from an unselfish desire to share it as from a vulgar longing to say to one's gregarious fellows, See what I have found? Can you show me anything to equal it in beauty, you dwellers in cities? Whatever its source in this case, I was glad that it passed quickly. No tears stained my pillow, even though I knew that Retario could never be the goal of Sunday excursionists. But I was not quite easy in mind as I composed myself for sleep. I had made a poor beginning as a diarist. The first entry was fanciful and, furthermore, not my own. What original contribution to truth or beauty could I make as a result of the day's events? Finally I rose, lit my lamp, and wrote underneath the Comus quotation. The Platonians are very fond of perfume. This is probably due to the fact that their islands, being scantily provided with flowers and sweet-smelling herbs, they take this means of satisfying their craving for fragrant odors. Alas, alas, how erroneous it was, that observation. But I thought when I made it that it was based upon a careful enough consideration of the facts. During the afternoon I had distributed some gifts among my guests, chiefly among the children. I had some bolts of ribbon and dress goods, some earrings and bracelets, thinly washed in gold, which I had bought on credit, 
of moiling the Chinamen, and had been saving them for just such an occasion as the feast at Soul Eater's Island. I also had a case of perfume which Moy had been very reluctant to part with. Perfume and toilet waters in fancy bottles with quaint legends printed on the labels. June Rose, which the makers admitted had as much body as higher-priced perfumes. Wild Violet, like a faint breath from the forest floor. Kifa Bouquet, the soul of the exquisite Orient, etc. This gift was greatly coveted. Pinga immediately took charge of the three bottles. I had given his daughters and packed them carefully in a Peru, together with a bottle of bay rum presented to him by virtue of his office as village barber. Rangituki went among her grandchildren, scolding and ranting until she had made a similar collection, and in a short time all the perfume was in the hands of a few of the older people. This seemed to me rather high-handed procedure, but it was not my place to interfere with parental and grandparental authority, and it was as well, perhaps, that the children should be restrained. Otherwise they would have saturated their clothing and their hair, and the atoll would have smelled to heaven or very near it. I thought no more of the episode until the following Sunday, when I went to church at the village. A combined service of Latter-day Saints and the Reformed Church of Latter-day Saints was being held an amicable agreement which would have scandalized the white missionaries of those rival denominations, but a Rotario, Saints, and Reformed Saints lived together peaceably enough. Being few in number, they often joined forces for greater effect in the homilies. The meeting was held in the Reformed Church, a sightly structure built entirely of nainu, the braided fawns of coconut palms, and the earthen floor was covered with mats of the same material. At one end of the room there was a raised platform and a deal table which served as a pulpit. The walls lengthwise were built to prop open outward, giving free circulation to the air, and charming views of the shaded floor of the island and the blue waters of the lagoon. The church was full, the men sitting on one side and the women on the other, according to island custom, and the children playing about on the floor between the benches. Many of the older people, too, sat on the floor with their backs to the post which supported the roof. Interest lagged during the intervals between the singing, and although Hori was preaching in his usual forceful, denunciatory manner, I found my own thoughts wandering on secular paths. Of a sudden it occurred to me that June Rose should be discernible among the women of the congregation if it had as much body as had been claimed for it. But I could not detect its presence, nor did the faintest breath reach me from the forest floor. I was conscious only of the penetrating odor of drying copra, which came through the open windows and the not unpleasant smell of coconut oil. What had become of the perfume, I wondered? On Sunday, if at all, it should have been in evidence, for the women were in white dresses, and before coming to church had made their most elaborate toilet of the week. But Hori was warming to his theme and demanded attention, at least from me, not having heard him preach before. He had removed his coat, and was perspiring and exhorting in a way which would have pleased the most devout and gloomy of missionaries. 
He had a peculiar oratorical manner. His face foretold clearly the birth of an idea. One could read there the first vague impulse of the brain which gave rise to it. See it gathering lucidity, glimmering, like heat lightning on a summer evening, in his cloudy mind until it was given utterance in a voice of thunder, which rumbled away to silence as the light of creation died out of his eyes. Then he would stand motionless, gazing on vacancy, profoundly unselfconscious, as though he were merely the passionless mouthpiece of some higher power. The abruptness of his outbursts and his ferocious aspect when delivering them were disconcerting, and it was even worse when at intervals his eyes met mine. Even though he were in the midst of a sentence, he would pause, and his face would beam with a radiant smile, in striking contrast to the forbidding scowl of the moment before. Remembering his mission, he would then proceed in his former manner. Without understanding his discourse, one would have said that he was condemning all of his auditors, who had evidently been guilty of the most frightful sins. But this was not the case. His sentences were short, and in the periods of silence between them I had time to make a translation. Utankama tane ai abela. Cain killed Abel. Why did he kill him? Because he was a bad man, a very bad man. Tatoa in Elroa. He was jealous of Abel, whom God loved, because he willingly brought him gifts from his plantation. Abel did not keep everything for himself. He said to God, Taiti fora na oi. Here is bread for you. He gave other things too, many things, and he was glad to give them. For he talked at great length on this theme. The members of the congregation sometimes listening and sometimes conversing among themselves. They had no scruples about interrupting the sermon. While Hari was awaiting further inspiration, hymns were started by the women and taken up at once by the others. Pinga, who sang bass parts, rocked back and forth to the cadence, one hand cupped over his right ear, the better to enjoy the effect of the music. Rangitui, who went to the different churches in turn because of the Jimenez, had one of her granddaughters in her lap and while she sang made a careful examination of the child's head in search of a tiny parasite which favored that nesting place. Nuivane sat with her breast bare, suckling a three-months-old baby. Old men and women and young, even the children, sang. Huari alone was silent, gazing with moody abstraction over the heads of the congregation as he pondered further the ethical points at issue in the Cain and Abel story. I had witnessed many scenes like this during the months spent in cruising among the atolls, on the Caleb S. Winship, scenes to interest one again and again, to furnish food for a great deal of futile speculation. How important a thing in the lives of these primitive people is this religion of ours which has replaced their old beliefs and superstitions. It would be absurd to say how fundamental for religious faith is of slow growth, and it was only yesterday, as time is counted, that the ship Duff, carrying the first missionaries who had ever visited the southern ocean, came to anchor at Tahiti. 
One of Harry's remarks called to mind an account I had read of the first meeting between Christian missionaries and the heathen they had come to save. It is to be found in the narrative of the Duff's Three Years' Voyage in the South Pacific, published in 1799 by the London Missionary Society. Sunday, March 5th, 1797. The morning was pleasant, and with a gentle breeze we had, by seven o'clock, got abreast of the district of Ahatu, where we saw several canoes putting off and paddling towards us with great speed. At the same time it fell calm, which, being in their favor, we soon counted seventy-four canoes around us, many of them double ones, containing about twenty persons each. Being so numerous, we endeavored to keep them from crowding on board but in spite of all our efforts to prevent it, there were soon not less than one hundred of them dancing and capering like frantic persons about our decks, crying, Teo, Teo, and a few broken sentences of English were often repeated. They had no weapons of any kind among them. However, to keep them in awe, some of the great guns were ordered to be hoisted out of the hold, whilst they, as free from apprehension as the intention of mischief, cheerfully assisted to put them on their carriages. When the first ceremonies were over, we began to view our new friends with an eye of inquiry. Their wild, disorderly behavior, strong smell of coconut oil, together with the tricks of the Arises, lessened the favorable opinion we had formed of them. Neither could we see aught of the elegance and beauty in their women, for which they have been so greatly celebrated. This at first seemed to depreciate them in the estimation of our brethren, but the cheerfulness, good nature, and generosity of these people soon removed the momentary prejudices. They continued to go about the decks till the transports of their joy gradually subsided, when many of them left us of their own accord. Those who remained in number, about forty, being brought to order, the brethren proposed having divine service on the quarter-deck. Mr. Cover officiated. He perhaps was the first that ever mentioned with reverence the Savior's name to these poor heathens. Such hymns were selected as the most harmonious tunes first, or the gloomy hills of darkness. Then blow ye trumpet bro, and at the conclusion praise God from whom all blessings flow. The whole service lasted about an hour and a quarter. How clear a picture one has of the scene, described by men whose purity of faith, whose sincerity of belief were beyond question. But one smiles a little sadly at the thought of their austerity, their total lack of that other divine attribute, a sense of humor. Toyo, toyo, friend, friend, the Tahitans cried, and the missionaries, to requite them, for their kindly welcome, organized a prayer meeting an hour and a quarter in length, and sang, O'er the gloomy hills of darkness. It was a prophecy, that song. The Tahitians and others of the Polynesian family have gone far on that road since 1797. Of course, one doesn't blame the missionaries for this, but it seems to me that the chief benefit resulting from the Christianizing process is that it has offset some of the evils resulting from the rest of the civilizing process. This was not the opinion of Tino, supercargo of the Calabas Winship, however. 
I remember a conversation with I had with him on the subject, when Rotario itself lay within view, but still far distant. For the sake of argument, I had made some willfully disparaging remark about traitors, and Tino had taken exception to it. You're wrong, he said. You know as well as I do, or maybe you don't, what these people used to be. Cannibals, and not so many years ago at that. I don't suppose you would call it a genteel practice. Well, what stopped it? I'll tell you what stopped it. Tinned beef. That was a new angle of vision to me. I said nothing, but I thought I could detect a hint of a smile in his eyes as he waited for the statement to sink in. I have had some fun in my time, he went on, arguing this out with the missionaries. I say tinned beef, and they say the four gospels. Can't be proved either way, of course, but suppose right now every trading schooner in the archipelago was to lay a course for Papiti. Suppose not one of them was to go back to the atolls for the next twenty-five years. Leave the people to themselves, as you say, and let them have their missionaries with the golden rule in one hand and the Ten Commandments in the other. What chance would they have of dying a natural death? The missionaries, I mean. About as much chance as I have of getting old Maroike at Takararo to pay me the eight hundred francs he owes me. What makes me laugh inside is that the missionaries are so serious about the influence they have had on the natives. I could tell them some things, but what would be the use? They wouldn't believe me. Just before we left Papeti this time, I was talking to one of the Protestants. He told me that his church had two hundred converts in French Oceana, while the Catholics had only around six hundred. I believe it was. I said that I knew how he could get that extra six hundred into his own fold, and probably a good many more if he wanted to. All he had to do was to charter my schooner, load her with Tahiti produce, bananas, mangoes, oranges, breadfruit. He needn't take a single gallon of rum unless he wanted to. Then we would make a tour of the islands, holding church festivals with refreshments at every one. And at the end of the cruise, I would guarantee that there wouldn't be a Catholic left in all Pomonius. He didn't take to the plan at all, and of course he did have one weak point. If the brothers tried the same game, they would have had just the same success, and nobody could tell from one week to the next which were Protestants and which were Catholics. That's about what happened at Tacarillo the last time I was down there. The population is supposed to be divided about half and half between the Latter-day Saints and the Catholics. There are no missionaries living on the island. The head churches in Papati send their men around when they can see how things are going with their flocks. That is usually about once a year for each of them. Boats don't often put in at Tacarero. I've been there only four times in ten years myself, and the last time I brought down a young fellow from the Protestant crowd. He had been with me the whole cruise, holding services at the islands where I had put in for Copra. I hadn't gone to any of them, but at Tacarero I felt the need of some religion. I'd spent the whole day chasing that Mercaro I spoke about. The old rascal has owed me that eight hundred francs since 1910. He is an elder in his church, too. 
the minute he makes out my schooner standing in toward the pass off he goes on important business to the far end of the lagoon i went after him that day with my usual luck he wasn't to be found and i came back to the village feeling a little ruffled up it was just time for the meeting and i decided that i might as well go as to loaf around finding that old hypocrite while my copra was being loaded the church was packed when it went in there wasn't a catholic in the village that evening all of those who had been catholics were taking part in the hymnody and singing the protestant songs as well as the latter-day saints no one seemed to pay much attention to the sermon though the young missionary didn't understand the language very well and the preaching was hard for him but he seemed to feel pretty good about the meeting and when we left the next day he went down to the cabin to write a report of the progress his church had made at Tacarero. he must have had a lot to say for he was at it all the morning he didn't know that we'd passed ada just after we got out of the pass that made me feel good for louis germain her skipper has been a rival of mine for years and i had every kilo of dry copra there was on the island i got the megaphone and was about to yell good luck to you louis when i saw that he had a missionary aboard too a priest with a knee-length beard and a black coat so I only waved my hand and louis shook his fist and shouted something i couldn't make out i was going to the westward stood close inshore and passed the village from the outside an hour later the priest hadn't lost any time getting his congregation together since there was no copra to be bought i suppose louis told him he had to get a move on there had been another religious landslide i was sure of that from the singing which i heard clear enough the wind being offshore great singers these palmodians and it doesn't make very much difference to them whether the song is happy day or jerusalem the golden course i didn't say anything to my missionary as the old saying is what you don't know won't hurt you this conversation with tina was running through my mind as i strolled down the village island after the service tina i decided was prejudiced his was the typical traitor's point of view i had heard many other incidents which bore him out in his findings but they came usually from men interested in exploiting the islands commercially. Arai's exposition of the old biblical story, was that merely the result of a prolonged tin-beef crusade? Remembering the kind of sacrifice which was discussed very likely on this very island in the days of pure heathenton, such a conclusion seemed fantastical. No, one must be fair to the missionaries. Perhaps they were overzealous at times, over-sanguine, about the results of their efforts. So were all human beings in whatever line of endeavor. But their accomplishment had been undeniably great. Here were people living orderly, quiet lives. They didn't drink, although in the early days of their contact with civilization, until quite recently. In fact, there had been terrible orgies of intoxication. To overcome that was, in itself, a worthwhile accomplishment on the part of the church. Only a few weeks before I had met Monsieur Farlaise, an administrator of the Potomans at Teniga. The reign of alcohol is over, he had said to the islanders, their strange words coming from the lips of a Frenchman. 
There was to be no more rum, nor gin, nor wine for any Pomodians. Henceforth, any trader found selling it or any native drinking it was to be severely punished. I continued my walk to the far end of the island, and selecting a shady spot, sat down to rest. The pressure of a notebook in my hip pocket interrupted my examination of the problem. The missionary versus the trader as a civilizing influence. I was reminded that I had made no recent observations on the life and character of the Pontians, and the recollection was annoying. Was I never to be able to pursue in indolence my unprofitable musings? Why this persistent feeling that I must set them down in black and white? Why sully the fair pages of my notebook? Words, words. The world was buried beneath their visible manifestations, and still the interminable clacking of interminable typewriters, the roar of gutted presses. In the mind's eye I saw magnificent forests being destroyed to feed this depraved appetite for words, which were piled mountain-high in libraries, which encumbered all the attics in Christendom, words blowing about the streets and littering the parks on Sundays, filling the ash-carts on Mondays. No, I thought, I will no longer be guilty of adding to the sum of words. I will not write my learned monograph. But that inner voice which itself is a creature born of many words, an artificial thing, however insistent its utterance, spoke out loud and clear. You idler! You waster of your inheritance of energy! You throw back to barbarism! Write! But why? I replied. Tell me that. Why? Sir, because it is your vocation. And have you no convictions? Your grandfather had them, and your great-grandfather, and those missionaries of the duff you have been thinking about. Ah, the decay of convictions in this age! The lack of that old sublime belief in something, anything. Now then, I have come down to you through a long line of ancestors. And I don't mean to die through lack of exercise. You may not believe in me, but you've got to obey me. Right. I know that I should have no peace until I did. I drew forth my notebook, and, in line with my thoughts of a moment before, wrote underneath the last observation on perfume. The sale and consumption of alcoholic beverages among these islands is now prohibited by law. It is strange to find such legislation in territory under French administration. Is the prohibition movement to become worldwide, then? Is the reign of alcohol doomed in all lands? Exhausted by the mental effort, but somewhat easier in conscience, I replaced the notebook in my pocket. It was pleasant, then, to let the mind lie fallow, or to occupy it with the reception of mere visual impressions. At length, although I didn't sleep, I was scarcely more animate than the fluted shell lying close by on the beach or the kapokapoka bushes, which formed a green enclosure around my resting place. 
Something whirled through the air over my head and fell with a slight splash in the water before me. I sat gazing at it curiously, hardly moved. So slowly does one come out of the depths of dreamless reverie. Little waves pushed the object gently shoreward until it lay rolling back and forth in a few inches of clear water. What I shouted? I didn't actually shout. I didn't open my lips. But the shock of astonishment seemed as loud as a blare of trumpets or a clash of cymbals. Before me lay a prettily fashioned bottle, half filled with seawater. And the label on it read, Kiva Bouquet, the soul of the exquisite Orient. Impossible, I thought. I am three miles from the village, and no one lives at this end of the island. Then I heard voices, or better one voice, which I recognized as that of Rangituki. She was talking in a low monotone, her most effective manner, when reciting one of her interminable stories of former days. Cautiously, I pushed aside the bushes and looked through. Rangituki was sitting about twenty yards away in the midst of a company of five. Penga was one of them, Tiva another, both fathers of families and both much concerned. A few days earlier, lest their children should waste the perfume I had given them. Penga took a pull at a bottle which I identified as belonging to Wild Violet. He made a wry face as he did it, but he took another and then another before he set it down. The wind was toward me, and as the corks popped, or more accurately, as stoppers were lifted, I was forced to admit that June Rose had body, impalpable, perhaps, but authentic. I passed defutive revelers unnoticed by going along the lagoon beach, keeping under the screen of copapa bushes. Should I tell Paris, the chief, of this evasion of the law? I decided that I would not, for he was a stern man and would punish the culprits severely. After all, on an island where there were so few distractions, what was a little perfume among friends? All of which proves plainly enough, it seems to me, the folly of keeping a notebook, at any rate, the folly of jumping hastily to conclusions. Or perhaps more important than this, it gives further light on the vexed question. Does prohibition prohibit? I found no other observation on Pomodian rife and character under this date unless the word Mama Faul, scribbled on the margin of a leaf, may be regarded as a discouraged hint at one, a suggestion for a commentary on a curious Polynesian relationship. When, and only when, I should have had time to gather all the available data concerning it. This relationship was to do with the transfer of a child or children from the original blood parents to another set known as feeding parents. My interest in the practice dates from the moment when I made my first notebook reference to it, and it was aroused in a very casual, leisurely fashion. For this reason, it will be best I think, to tell the story of it in a leisurely way. Returning to the village from the scene of the perfume orgy, I found the church still occupied, although the service was long over. The benches had been stacked in one corner, the mats shaken out, and spread again on the floor. 
where fifteen or twenty people were reclining at ease or sitting native fashion, some of them talking, some sleeping, some engaged in light tasks such as hat-weaving and the fashioning of pearl-shell fish-hooks, others in the yet more congenial task of doing nothing at all. It was the practice on Sunday for the village to gather at the Reformed Church, which they felt at liberty to use for secular as well as sacred purposes, for it was a native-built structure, with walls and roofs of thatch, like those of their own houses. The two other churches were never so used. They were frame buildings, in the European or American style of church architecture, with formal furnishings and windows of colored glass. To have done any sort of work in either of them would have been regarded as a serious offense, certain to be followed by unmistakable evidence of divine displeasure. As Tuina once told me, sores, illness, even death might result as a punishment for such desecration. I was thinking of this and other primitive reactions to ecclesiastical furniture, and my hand was faltering toward my notebook pocket when Horai's little daughter, Maneva, entered the church carrying a white cloth which she spread on the pulpit table. She returned a moment later with a tin of sardines, some boiled rice, on a cahia leaf, and a bowl of tea. I was Hori's guest for the day and had been anxiously awaiting some evidence that food was on the way, but I had not expected that it would be served in the church. I had not eaten in a church dinner since boyhood, and strangely enough the memory of some of those early feasts came back to me while Manaba was setting the table, as one scene is superimposed upon another on a moving picture screen. I saw an American village of twenty years ago, a village of broad sidewalks and quiet, shaded streets, bright with dandelions, taking ghostly form and transparency among the palms of Vertero. Two small boys walked briskly along, ringing handbells and shouting, Dinner at the Presbyterian Church right away! The G.A.R. band of five, two tenor drums, and one bass played outside the church where the crowd was gathering and horses attached to buggies and spring wagons, were pawing the earth around the hitching posts. Then Mrs. McGregor appeared in the doorway, her kindly face beaming the warmest of welcomes. "'Come on in and sit down, folks. Everything's all ready. Members of the Ladies' Relief Corps, mothers of large families, used to catering for large appetites, hurried back and forth with platters of roast turkey and chicken, roast beef, mashed potatoes of marvelous smoothness and flakiness, with everything in the way of food, which that hospitable Middle Western country provides. I heard the pleasant talk of homely things, smelled the appetizing odors, saw plates replenished again and again. Throughout the length of the tables, old-fashioned gravy boats sailed from cover to cover. But I spared myself further contemplation of the scene, further shadowy participation in a feast which cost the affluent but a quarter, and a bell-ringer nothing at all. The vision faded, but before it was quite gone, I heard a voice saying, "'Land sakes! You boys ain't eating a thing. Have some more of these dumplings.' What's the matter with your appetite? Ain't you feeling well? It seemed a thousand years away, that voice, 
and no doubt it was, and is, even further than that. Church dinners at Rotario were not such sumptuous affairs. They were not, in fact, an integral part of the community life. In so far as I know, this was the only one ever held there, and was the result of Harry's peculiar notions of the hospitalities due a white man. I told him that I was not accustomed to dining in churches at home, even on Sunday, and furthermore, that I liked companionship at table. But he was not convinced, and he refused to join me. He and his family had already eaten, he said, so I sat on a box at the pulpit table, partaking in a solitary meal, and got through it as quickly as possible. I smiled inwardly at the thought of the inheritance of prestige granted me without question, at Rotario merely because I was the sole representative there of a so-called superior race. No white wasters had preceded me to the atoll. This was fortunate in a way, for it gave me something to live up to, the ideal Rutorian conception of the pa-pa-pa, white man. Harari was partially responsible for the fact that it was ideal. His tales of San Francisco, which to the Pomodian means America, had been steadily growing in splendor. He seemed to have forgotten whatever he may have seen there of misery or incompetence or ugliness. All Americans were divinities of a sort. Their energy was superhuman. Their accomplishment, as exemplified in ships, trains, buildings, automobiles, moving picture theaters, beyond all belief unless one had actually seen those things. And the meanest of them lived on a scale of grandeur far surpassing that of the governor of the Pomodans at Fukaba. Yes, I had something to live up to at Rotario. The necessity was flattering, to be sure, but it cost some effort and inconvenience to meet it. I didn't dare look as slack as I often felt, both mentally and physically. I could not even sit on the floor or stretch out at my ease when in a native house, and I was compelled, when eating, to resume the use of my two-pronged fork and the small tin spoon, although it was much simpler and easier to eat with my fingers as the rest of them did. Having finished my meal, I took what comfort prestige permitted by placing my box by the wall and leaning back against the post. Ticario, a woman of barbaric beauty, was sitting nearby playing Conquer the North on my ocarina, I taught her the air in an unguarded moment and had been regretting it ever since. Hunger, her husband, lay at her side, his strong, fine limbs relaxed in sleep. I would have given all my gratuitous prestige as a popra to have exchanged legs or shoulders or girth of chest with him. It was at about this time, as I remember it, that my thoughts turned to the subject of feeding parents. Nui Vahane was present, still, or again, nursing the three-months-old baby. It belonged, as I knew, to Takero, who appeared to be quite capable of nourishing it herself. Why had she given it to Nui Vahane? And why had Hunga, the father of the child, consented to this seemingly unnatural gift? The transfer of parenthood had been made a month earlier, since which time 
DiCario and her husband had shown only a slight proprietary interest in their offspring. DiCario sometimes dandled it on her knees, as any woman might the child of someone else, but no one would have guessed that she was the mother of it. Nuivain fed, clothed, and bathed it, and her husband, Nuitain, was as fond of it as she herself. They kept the child at their house, and between them, made as much fuss over it as though it were their own flesh and blood. What could have been the origin of this strange practice of parenthood by proxy? It was a common one throughout eastern Polynesia. I had seen a good many instances of it in the Cook Islands, the Marquesas, and the Society Group. Here was a subject worthy of an important chapter in the life and character monograph and I decided I might as well begin my researches at once. Ticario reluctantly left off her playing and placed herself in a receptive mood. Why, I asked, had she given her child to Nuiveni? Her reply was because Nuiveni had asked for it. But see here, Ticario, I said, I should think that you and Hunga would want to keep your own baby. It is none of my business, of course. I ask you only because I would like to get some information on this feeding parent custom. Can't you feed it yourself? Is that the reason you gave it away? I blundered atrocitly in asking that question without meaning to. I touched her pride as a woman, as a mother. Takio looked at me for a moment without speaking. Then she tore open her dress and gave me absolute proof, not that I wanted it, of her ability to nurse her own or any other child. Following this, she went over to where Nuivane was sitting, snatched the baby from her arms, and almost smothered it against her body. She fondled it, kissed it, covered it with her magnificent hair. I had never before seen a, such a display of savage and tender maternal passion. By that time, Nuiveni had recovered from her astonishment and came to defense of her own. Her month of motherhood gave her claims to the child, apparently, and she tried to enforce them physically. Takario stood her ground, her black eyes flaming, and, holding the baby in one arm, pushed Nuiveni away with the other. I expected to see hair flying, but luckily both women found their tongues at the same moment. They were like they were, in fact, two superb cats spitting at each other. The torrent of words did not flow smoothly. It came in hot, short bursts, like salvos of machine-gun fire. And, curiously enough, it was almost pure Pimotian, not the hybrid Pimotian Tahitian commonly used in their temperate speech. It bristled with snarling wings, with flint-like k's, from which fire could be struck in passionate argument. Other women took sides in the quarrel, and I poked an inquisitive pencil into a wasp nest. The effect could hardly have been more disconcerting. Hunga was awakened by the angry voices and looked on with sleepy perplexity. Nuitain grinned reassuringly, as much to say, Don't be upset. You know what women are. Finally, Pareti, the chief, who had been an impassive spectator, bellowed out a command for silence. The tumult subsided at once, and the fury of the women, with it, 
Five minutes later, everything was as had had been before. Hunga was sleeping, and Nui Tain polishing a pearl-shelled fish-hook. Nui Vahani had the baby, and Takeari the ocarina. Neither of them showed the least resentment, either toward me or toward each other. In intensity and briefness, the gusts of passion which swept through the little church was precisely like the squalls of wind and rain which darkened the seas of the low archipelago in the midst of the hurricane season, which burst almost from a clear sky, and then as suddenly melt into pure sunlight again. When I left the village to return to Soul Eater's Island, Takario was still playing the old border ballad on my ocarina. It had once been my favorite air for that instrument. I first heard it in northern France on a blustering winter evening when a brigade of English regiments was marching under heavy shell-fire into one of the greatest battles of the war, to the music of pipes and drums. Humming the air now, although I still feel a tightening of the nerves, a quickening of the pulses, it is not because of the old set of associations. They have been buried forever beneath a newer set. The village at Rotario comes into view, and I see Takario clutching a baby against her naked breast, standing in the midst of a crowd of turbulent women. Should there be some other Polynesian scholar who wishes to pursue further an inquiry into a curious practice of child adoption, I would advise extreme caution and at a toll far on the southeasterly fringe of the low archipelago. The place may easily be identified, for he will find there a young woman of barbaric beauty, who will be playing Conquer the North on an ocarina. End of chapter 9《Chapter Ten of Fairy Islands of the South Seas》This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Benditti. Chapter Ten: Costly Hospitality. For an authentic test of one's capacity for solitude, or better perhaps for convincing proof of the lack of it, two conditions are essential: complete isolation. That goes without saying, of course and the assurance that such isolation will not be broken into. At Soul Eater's Island, I expected to find both of these conditions fulfilled. My house was four miles from the settlement, but in reality I had no more seclusion there than a hermit whose retreat is within easy walking distance of a summer hotel. Visitors came in canoes, in cutters, and as the pass and the reef on either side of it were a favorite fishing ground many of them came prepared to spend the day or the night or both it is as well perhaps that the event fell out as it did if life is to keep its fine zest many wished-for experiences must be perpetually unrealized and we perpetually following our alluring phantoms until we tumble headlong out of existence not having been put to the proof, I may still persuade myself that I am a lover of solitude, gifted for the enjoyment of it beyond other men. Meanwhile, at Soul Eater's Island, I had a further experience with Moi Ling, the Chinese storekeeper, 
which convinced me of very definite limitations in another direction. Sometime after I had taken up residence there, the village came in a body to the adjacent island on the other side of the pass. During the year they moved in this way, from one piece of land to another, collecting the ripe coconuts and making their copra on the spot. The land was not owned in common, but they worked it in common. And as house-building was a simple matter, instead of going back and forth from the village, they erected temporary shelters and remained at each island in turn until the work there was finished. They were not unremitting toilers. After an hour or two of copra-making in the cool of the early morning, they were content to call it a day, and spent the rest of the time at more congenial occupations, swimming, fishing, visiting back and forth, talking forever of the arrival of the last trading scooter and the probable date of arrival of the next one. During all of this time I kept open house, and since I was indebted to nearly all of my friendly visitors for past hospitalities, I felt that it was necessary to make returns. Unfortunately, I had nothing to make returns with except such supplies of provisions and trade goods as I was able to purchase on credit of Moy Ling. Fish were abundant in the lagoon, and a few minutes of fine sport each day more than supplied my wants. But I knew that fish was not acceptable to palates long accustomed to little else. Furthermore, having accepted at the time of my arrival at Rotario the role of the generous, affluent papa, I had to carry it through. As previously related, although I had been left at Rotario unexpectedly, the inhabitants took it for granted that I had plenty of money. The possession of wealth in the form of banknotes is regarded there as one of the attributes of a white man, as necessary to his comfort and convenience, and as much a part of him as arms and legs. Pride prevented my disillusioning them at first when I was in desperate need of a new wardrobe, but it got me into a devil of a hole with Moy, and I dug myself in more deeply every day. Having traded upon the native tradition of the mysterious affluence of all white men by opening up a credit account with the Chinaman, I had to sustain his confidence in my ability to cancel it at once if I chose, and feeling inwardly object, it was all the more necessary to maintain a reassuring front in the face of his growing anxiety. It was growing. I could see that. He never actually dunned me, but I escaped the humiliating experience only by making additional purchases on so vast a scale, according to island standards, that even Moy seemed to be awed for brief periods into a stupefied acceptance of the mysteriously affluent myth. I myself was awed when I thought of the size of my bill. Trade good carried across thousands of miles of ocean are more than usually expensive. A one-pound tin of bully beef cost nine francs, and other things were proportionately dear. The worst of it was that Moy's stock of supplies was much larger than I had at first supposed. He had a warehouse adjoining his store, 
which was full of them, and so, with guests making constant demands upon my hospitality, I was forced to buy with the greater abandon as his confidence waned. But I returned from these encounters with a washed-out feeling, regretting that I had ever accepted guile as an ally, and longing for relief from a state of affairs which I knew could not continue indefinitely. Relief came in historic eleventh-hour fashion. Providence saved me when I thought pride was riding me to a starry fall. One evening I paddled across to the other island for further supplies. Huirai and his family had been staying with me for several days. Fishing was better on my side of the lagoon pass, he said, but I think his real purpose in coming had been to eat my, or rather Moy Ling's, tinned beef. At any rate, when they returned I had nothing left. It was still fairly early, but no one was abroad in the village street. There was a light at Moy's shop, however, and looking through the open window I saw him sitting at a table, with his adding machine before him. He was counting aloud in Chinese, his long, slim fingers playing skillfully over the wooden beads which slid back and forth on the framework with a soft clicking sound. And as he bent over columns of figures, the lamplight filled the hollows of his cheeks and temples with pits of shadow. In repose his face was as expressionless as that of a corpse. I felt my courage going as I looked at it. What chance had I of carrying through successfully this game of beggarman's bluff? How long could I hope to maintain the fiction of affluence before a man wise with the inherited experience of centuries of shopkeeping ancestors? I had a moment of panic, and before I realized what I was doing, I had entered the shop and asked for my bill. Moy slip-slopped into his back room and returned with a large packet of old newspapers. He was a frugal soul and kept his accounts as he ordered his life, with an eye to avoiding unnecessary expense. The journals were painted over with Chinese characters, the items of my various purchases. He arranged the lists in order, sat down to his counting machine again, and presently gave me the grand total. The amount was something over four thousand francs. Thank heaven for righteous anger. Thank heaven for anger which is only moderately righteous. I knew that I had bought lavishly, but I had kept a rough estimate of the amount of my purchases, and I also knew that Moy had added at least ten percent to his legitimate profit. He had reasoned, no doubt, that a man who bought on mere whim, without asking the price of anything, would settle his obligations as thoughtlessly as he had incurred it. And I would, of course. This was necessary if I were to live up to native tradition in the grand style. But when I saw how costly the game had become, and how thoroughly Moy had entered into the spirit of it, too, I felt indignant, and instead of confessing my predicament as I meant to do, I ordered another case of tinned beef and a bag of rice and left the shop without further talk. This righteous wrath was all very well, but now that I had asked for my bill, I would have to settle it.
How was this to be done? If only I had my sea-chest, which Tino, supercargo of the Caleb S. Winship, had carried away with him when he left me at Rotario. My pocketbook was in it, containing all my money, more than enough to cancel the debt with Moy. I had rather an anxious time during the next few days. I remember entertaining as usual, but in a faint-hearted way, sleeping badly, and between times walking up and down Soul Eater's Island, trying to subdue my pride to a point of confession. Then one afternoon, when I was sitting on the ocean beach, watching the surf piling up on the barrier reef, I became aware of a vessel hull down on the horizon. I could hardly believe my eyes. It was like a far hello from a world which I had almost forgotten existed. All through the afternoon she beat steadily to windward, until at dusk she was about two miles distant, and I saw that she was one of the small schooners without auxiliary power which were used by Papiti trading companies for collecting copra at the less profitable atolls. All the village came over to Soul Eater's Island, for the anchorage at this end of the atoll lay just behind it. The schooner was recognized. It was a Poti Ralvavera, which visited the toll about once a year. She entered the pass with the turn of the tide, lighting her way by the fire which was burning in a primitive galley, a tin-lined box half-filled with sand. I could see her native skipper at the wheel, a couple of sailors preparing to take in sail, and two native women sitting on the poop, with a great large pile of luggage behind them. One of them was Tapera, daughter of Pauri, chief of the atoll who had been sent to Protestant school at Papati nearly a year ago. The other was Tawara, her aunt, with whom she had been living there. The crowd on the beach waited in deep silence while the schooner anchored and the sails were being furled. I remember that I could hear very plainly the fall-off rumbling of the surf on the windward side of the atoll and the hissing of frying fish, or whatever it was, a native boy was cooking at the galley fire. Then the small boat was lowered, and the women brought ashore with their luggage. Tapera went at once to her father, and putting her head on his shoulder, began to cry softly. Not a word was spoken. Tavara and Pora, her sister, squatted on their heels close by, their arms around each other, moaning in the same softly audible way. The women then went in turn among all the relatives, having their little cry while the rest of the village looked on in sympathetic silence. When they had finished, a fire was lit on the beach, and everyone gathered around to hear the news and to examine the schooner's cargo, which was being put on shore. More trade goods for more ling, I thought. Remembering my debt, I couldn't summon any great amount of interest in the scene. I was about to return to my house when Hari came bustling up, carrying my sea-chest. You like this? he said. What he meant was, is this yours? But for once he misused his English with splendid relevancy. I sat down weakly on the box, holding a letter which he had thrust into my hand. No doubt of it. It was my box, and the letter was addressed to me in Tino's familiar handwriting. It read in part as follows. We have just met with a Poti Rivera here at Hao. She is going to Riterio within a few weeks, so I'm sending your sea-chest by her. 
Sorry I left you in the godforsaken hole, but I was tight that evening and pretty mad at the way you upset my plans with your marble-playing foolishness. Next morning, when I sobered up, I felt like going back for you, but we had fair wind and I had my cargo to think of. The price of copra is on the downgrade, and I've got to get back to Papati with mine before the bottom falls out of the market. You said once you wanted to see all you could of life in the Pomotus. Well, I guess you'll have your chance at Rotario. If I was you, I would come back on the P. Rivera. She only carries twenty-seven tons cargo, so she'll probably go direct to Papati from there. I'm also sending you an empty ten-gallon demijohn. Fill this with water before you leave. If you come back on the P.R. Mitty, her skipper is a good sailor, but all he knows about navigation you could write on a postage stamp. I met him once about twenty miles south of Fakinhea. He was cruising around looking for Antagotu, which was seventy miles to the northeast. Well, he can't miss Tahiti if he gets within a hundred miles of it, so you better take a chance and come back with him. But don't forget to carry your own supply of fresh water. Sometimes these little native boats get becalmed, and it's no joke being thirsty at sea. Yours, Dino. P.S. Meaty has a big bunch of letters for you, from your friend Nordo. I saw the packet. It looks as though it had been traveling some. Nordo, he says, is in Tahiti again. I'll probably see him there and will tell him to wait for you. Give my regards to all your marble players. Good old Tino. He did me nothing but good turns. Late that night, when the rest of the villagers had crossed the pass, I pried open the lid of the chest, having lost a key, and found my belongings just as I had left them, my camera, my binoculars, and charts. And most important of all, in the bottom of the chest, wrapped in a pair of trousers, my pocketbook. I didn't pay Moy until just before the departure of the schooner, and staged the final episode at an hour when his shop was filled with loungers. I came away with his receipted bill, one hundred and twenty francs, and the consciousness of having adequately safeguarded tradition. We left Rotario the following day. I did not realize until the moment of leave-taking how painful the farewells would be. As soon as they were over, I went on board, crawled into the little cabin, and, despite the cockroaches and copra-bugs, remained there until the schooner had left the pass and was well out to sea. After our separation at Papati, Nordolf went on to the southwest. He wrote me from an island he called Ahu-Ahu, and from there, apparently, he took passage to Rorotonga, the principal island of the Cook Group. Long before the discovery of New Zealand, Rorotonga was the goal of Polynesian mariners from the north and west, fearless explorers, traveling in their double canoes across hundreds of leagues of ocean, guided by sun and stars, some of them arriving at their destination, many others, doubtless, perishing in search of it. From Samoa, in the early centuries of our era, came the Karakana family to reign in Rorotonga down to the present day and Samoa is believed to have been the principal starting point of the voyagers which peopled the eastern Pacific. In the language of those old-time voyagers, Tonga meant south, and they gave that name to the friendly islands. 
Further to the west and south they came upon the Cook group, in those days, no doubt, the southernmost ends of the earth. And the high island of this group, the faint blot on the horizon which led the canoes to land, they called Rorotonga, under the south. End of chapter 10